One day, at the end of the Second World War, a remarkable story appeared in the Irish papers. Irish Independent, Thursday, October 4th, 1945. They reported that two little boys aged nine and six had arrived in Dunleary Port. From Farriest to Era, roundward trip of boy internees. When the Cambria docked at Dunleary last night, two handsome, well-dressed boys ran down the gangway to complete the last stage of a journey which had brought them almost around the world. According to the papers, the two little boys were wearing matching reefer coats and little round caps. And arrived in Dublin in the best of spirits, greeting relatives with smiles and handshakes. The smiles and handshakes were surprising to reporters, because the two little boys had just travelled all the way from the Philippines, and they were on their own, without their parents. The boys were separated from their parents and have no knowledge as to their fate, which is still unknown. The boys could not be persuaded to talk of their ordeal in the Far East. They may not have wanted to talk then, but now, almost 70 years later, one of the little boys who ran down that gangway in Dunleary does want to talk. Those are the only newspaper cuttings I have, which are very short. John Shannon wants to talk about the mother and father they left behind, who had almost faded from family history. An untold story of an Irish family caught up in a war. Well... That's difficult because I have I don't have very clear memories of them um, <clears throat> thinking back to my memories of my mother and father I don't really have very clear recollections I can remember my father <clears throat> teaching me how to do some card tricks I remember him teaching me how to dry myself properly after a shower. Get the towel and do it down your back and then do it down your front and then do it between your toes, all this kind of stuff, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, I can remember him telling me... Oh, no. He said, there's very little, actually. There's there's, There's nothing really substantive that I can say. This is John one of the little boys. He and his brother Mike ended up making their lives in England. I've never seen these. Since John retired, yeah. he's been keen to fill in the gaps in his family history and he decided a good first place to start was to write to an address where his family used to live in Ireland. I got a letter out of the blue in February 2011. Luckily for him, some of his relations still live there, the Shannons. Now it was addressed to me, Patrick J. Shannon, Esquire, Spring Valley House. Dear Mr Shannon, I am writing to you in the hope that you may be able to provide me with some information on my wider Shannon family background. I'd also be very interested to know where you personally fit into the Shannon family generations, going back to Oliver Shannon. I hope it will not put you to too much trouble, but anything you can provide by way of answers to the foregoing questions would be very much appreciated, either by letter or via email. With kind regards, yours sincerely, John Shannon. When Patrick rang me up about that letter and about this cousin of ours, I wondered for a few minutes who it was he was talking about. I, I was totally taken aback, just wondering, is, uh, you know, is this for real? But then he had so much information that I was aware of that tied in that uh, he was he he was one of the um, one of the lost orphans. 
I was aware of some cousins uh, who had been in the bank in Manila and that their two young sons were orphans. I didn't know their names, uh, what happened to them, and I didn't know any another thing about them. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. The place that John wrote his letter to is this Georgian house called Spring Valley. There's a big driveway up to the house with cows grazing on either side. If there was one place you'd associate with the Shannons in Ireland, it's Spring Valley, uh, which is this beautiful Georgian house in this 129 acres, and and today occupied by Marie and Patrick, and their their three children. After John's letter to Patrick, the Shannons had a big family reunion in Spring Valley. John came over to Ireland and visited the house to meet the long lost relations, Patrick Shannon. And his wife, Mary. Talk about the din. All you could hear was... Everyone, like, some people hadn't met and whatever, and then trying to get a word in. People brought some photographs. They were reminiscing. John's younger brother, Mike, came over too, and hordes of relations all gathered to swap stories. And most importantly, for filling in the gaps, was one of the only people that actually remembered John and Mike from when they were very little. How are you? Such a nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. The two little boys' first cousin, Patricia Shannon, or Ricky as everyone calls her. I could remember a fuss about these two cousins. You know, where the hell they come from, Manila, I didn't know where that was. There were lots of pieces of the jigsaw that still had to be put together. Everybody had their own bits of memory. I was six at the time they came home. And the feeling in the house was it wasn't talked of in front of the children because it would upset us. But in reality, the war was something that went over my head as a six-year-old. Before Patrick got that letter, I actually hadn't seen John for years. He went to England when he was in his 20s, what, 60 years ago? And we haven't seen him since. Mary and Patrick have renovated Spring Valley over the past few years. We're going back and looking at all the old letters now. It's been in the family for generations. Well, I tell you, there's so many of them. I only got through three letters in a night, like... Ricky and Mary have been organising all of the old books and letters... And in amongst them, Mary found a letter from John's father, Oliver, written in the 1920s. So this is the other letter that we came across from him, and he wrote that from the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, the 8th of June, 1921. But they had, it sounds like they had a great time. My dear Uncle Ollie, here I am since the end of last March and have not written to you yet. You must forgive me. It is quite a nice place. At present, rather hot, as we were in the middle of the hot season, but from September to May it is glorious, just like spring at home. The bank do us very well. We have a large mess up on top of the peak, which is 2,000 feet over Hong Kong. It is up here most of the business heads and wealthier residents live. Europeans, of course, as no Chinese, Japanese, etc. are allowed on it at all. Can you believe that? You know, but anyway, we lead a much healthier life out here than at home. When we leave the office at five, there's always swimming, tennis or sailing in the summer and football, golf, etc. in the winter. Then on Sunday afternoons, we go off for picnics in the bank's launch to some of the numerous bays which are all over the place. 
We get mails from home about twice a month, which is not so bad. How are Aunt Alice and the boys? I hope enjoying life. I'd give quite a lot to be back in old Spring Valley, making hay with you all. Tell the Grogans that I was asking for them and that I hope they will have Ireland quieter when I come home in five years' time. I'm afraid I must close now. Love to all, your loving nephew, O.J. Shannon. That's from Hong Kong when he was only starting off and see, from the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, he was then transferred to Manila at some stage. But in between, obviously, he got married and all that. The Far East really was far away in those days. Oliver only got leave from the bank every four years. And he met Eileen Smith in Dublin when he was home on one of his leaves. Oh, that was the telegram all spliced when they got married. Oliver and Eileen got married in 1931. And John was born five years later. I just remember my mother talking about her and she apparently was very, very good looking. Very beautiful, was what my mother said, you know. I have a vague, very, very, very recollection that she used to suffer from neuralgia or something and very often she'd be in bed during the day. She'd go and lie down for several hours because her face was hurting or something like that. But it's a very shady memory and... uh, and, and, and I can't substantiate it in any way. No, no one ever told me about it, as it were. But beyond that, very, 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 very little. John's father was then posted to the Philippines. By this time, John's brother, Michael, had been born. So Oliver and Eileen moved to Manila. We returned there in April of the year 1939, when in September, Britain de- declared war on Germany. Although this was during the war, the Philippines was at peace. Not only was it at peace, but for a young bank manager from Ireland and his family in the 30s, it was really quite luxurious. Compared to what most people in Ireland were doing at that stage, it was exotic in the extreme altogether, you know. You know, if you think of Ireland in the 1930s, 1940s, it wasn't booming or anything like that, you know. So it would have been, I think, and and sort of the end of the British Empire nearly, you know, it is. I keep thinking of Somerset Maughan and, you know, going round the bay on your launch and up the mountains and stuff. We thought it was madly exotic. We lived in a large bank-owned house on the Pasig River in the Philippines, And we had a huge lawn, a very spacious house. And in pre-war days, the lifestyle of the European people in the Philippines was idyllic. We had seven or eight servants. We used to go to the polo club every Sunday. There was a great social life. It represented a reflection of the pinnacle of the colonial life. It must have been a whole new world to her. I don't think she'd ever been outside Ireland when she went. This cousin of mine who remembers meeting her said she spoke to her about going back to Miller and she said she got the impression that she was sort of sad to be going back, you know. She would have got the impression that she sort of was maybe a bit lonely was what she thought. Lovely lifestyle, but, but quite lonely. You're missing your family. She would a big family. But this colonial lifestyle was about to change. And change quickly. I think that you take things for granted in life, and the whole British colonial system assumed the ascendancy of the, of the Brits, and it was almost inconceivable that this could be so quickly and so fundamentally altered. But there's no question that it was a lifestyle 
that was never again to return. Japan was expanding its control in the region and tensions with the United States were building. In 1941, the Philippines was emerging from United States control, but still had US bases. The country was bound to be a target for Japanese invasion and John's parents had to decide to stay or go back to Ireland. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. They could have left before the Japanese invasion, but I think that it was a revelation to everyone how powerful, how organized, and how well-planned the Japanese invasion of the Asia-Pacific area proved to be. Since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. American and Filipino military forces outnumbered the Japanese three to one, so nobody expected what happened next. But the Japanese were a superior force and quickly took control of the Philippines. We were there through the initial period of the bombings, and I remember my father somehow securing a huge cross-section of a sort of irrigation pipe which he viewed as an air raid shelter and which he surrounded with sandbags. And when the air raids occurred, that's where we went to. The bank shut down completely. Once the Japanese invaded, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank ceased to operate in the Philippines. I remember vividly when the Americans finally withdrew from the Philippines into Bataan and declared Manila an open city they opened the oil wells and poured the oil into the Pasig River to avoid the Japanese taking that oil, and they set it alight. And there was one night when the whole river from side to side was a complete sheet of flame, and my father and our houseboys and servants, uh, stripped to the waist with wet sandbags, lined themselves up along the edge of the river, to beat back the flames for fear that they would catch fire on the lawn and ultimately threaten the house. That was my first and most vivid memory of the war and it was a very terrifying experience throughout that night but they did succeed in keeping the flames from catching fire on our property. The Japanese rounded up American and British civilians and interned them in camps. The Shannon family, however, were spared the camps because they were neutral Irish, which might have been some comfort to their family back in Ireland, but communications were bad. 
At first they possibly felt secure, but I think things got more and more difficult. But they must have wondered what was coming, you know. And a telephone communication was mad. And my grandmother, I do remember her saying that she hadn't heard from them for months. So the mail wasn't getting through, obviously, either, you know. There were more important things than the post home. I remember asking my father who was winning the war. And he said, please remember that we are Irish and we're neutral and we do not take sides. And it would be dangerous for us to take any position or to talk about supporting the Americans or opposing the Japanese or anything like that. So don't talk about anything like that. To the best of my knowledge, my parents were the only Irish staff there. The rest of them were British. They were interned in Santa Tomas initially, and they didn't have a particularly pleasant time. There were gross shortages of food, medical supplies, and so forth. A number of people died. Those who tried to escape, if they were captured by the Japanese, were executed. But they did, in in most cases, survive. All of the British bank colleagues were locked up in camps and one of them, Ronald McIntyre, later wrote a report for the bank about that time and how helpful it was to have Eileen and Oliver, whom he affectionately referred to as Paddy, on the outside. Paddy Shannon and his wife Eileen both had Irish passports. Assuming they would be interned, Paddy drove his wife and their two small boys into Santa Thomas in their blue Pontiac car with the Irish Republican flag painted on the windshield. But on realising that Ireland was neutral in the war against Japan, they drove out again. Many of the bank staff owe their health and maybe their lives to this incident. Paddy and Eileen devoted most of their time on the outside to obtaining money and food for those of us who were interned. Eileen Shannon spent time visiting various bank families and others. She was cheerful and brave. This was the last time I saw her. Eileen had her face slapped by a Jap sentry for failing to bow to him on one occasion on the outside. Despite the Shannons being careful and being neutral, it wasn't enough. Manila became too dangerous and Oliver and Eileen decided they needed to leave the city. We were eventually turned out of our bank house by the Japanese who took it over, requisitioned it for military purposes. But my father then decided that it would be prudent for us to move from Manila up to Baguio, the resort city of Baguio, in the mountains. We went up there by car with as much of our belongings as we we could manage. Their new home was a mountain resort town, a bit like the Indian hill stations, where people would retreat from the heat of Manila during the hot season. It was 1942. John was seven years of age. Life had a sort of normality. The family were together. He even went to school. I was in school and local Filipino children were forced to study Japanese. Because we were neutral, I did not have to go to Japanese lessons. When you passed a sentry at a checkpoint, of which there were many in Baguio, you had to bow to the Japanese. And if you didn't, they would either take the butt of their gun to you or slap you or something like that. After three years, the fortunes of war shifted and the Americans returned to take the Philippines back. This is the voice of freedom, General MacArthur speaking. People of the Philippines, I have returned. 
This new stage of war meant civilians in the Philippines were suffering from the bombing by attacking Americans and retribution from retreating Japanese. For the Shannons, they were turned out of yet another house. A woman who lived locally in a shop called Mrs. Ickhart offered them accommodation. I assume that when we were turned out of our house in Baguio, Mrs. Eichardt said, well, you're very welcome to come and stay in my, my shop for whatever accommodation we can, we can provide you with there. The Shannons agreed to move in with Mrs. Eckhart. But this may have been a disastrous decision because Mrs. Eckhart's husband was with the local resistance and she and her house guests were now under suspicion. They assumed that their neutrality would have protected them and I think that they may have been somewhat rash and it's possible that... My parents made a bad decision, although they had maybe had no other options in accepting your invitation to join her in living in that shop. They were caught up in the whole thing. It didn't matter that they were Irish and neutral at all. Not sure the Japanese knew any more about that than the man the moon. But also I think they thought they had collaborated with the local people or that they were sympathetic to them anyway. But certainly Oliver and Eileen must have been worried sick about what was happening to them. And nobody there really to sort of say, well, if anything happens to us, will you look after them or what, you know? There weren't any other Irish people there or any other too many that they could call on for assistance, you know? It's an awful long way away when you think of it. Mrs Eckhart hadn't just taken in the Shannons and their nursemaid, Maria. She'd also taken in a refugee couple from Switzerland, the Bloilers. It wasn't ideal, but they must have felt it was the safest option. That is, until one night when Japanese soldiers came to the house. I woke with my foot being pulled. And at the end of the bed, the lights had been turned on. There was a Japanese soldier at the end of the bed, rifle slung over his shoulder, and he just gestured for me to get up and then gestured for us to, to move downstairs. And we were sleeping on this balcony. As I went down, I looked over the balcony and saw my parents, both of them and Mrs. Eckhart, sitting on a couch facing three or four Japanese interrogators. After that, of course, nothing further. We never saw them again. We were herded into the bathroom. That's the Bloilers, their children, myself and my brother, and uh, a sentry was posted on the door. And we seemed to be there for an interminable time until eventually the sentry said they were departing and we were not to come out for another hour or two. I can't remember exactly. And when we emerged, my parents and Mrs. Eckhart had gone. One of the things my mother always used to say that next morning when they managed to get out of this room that they found my uncle Oliver's, that's John father, passport on the floor. Now all along they had been sort of, I think, thinking that because they were Irish they were going to be immune to any involvement in in the whole Japanese invasion. John and Mike still hoped they'd see their parents again. The Swiss man, Mr Bloiler, set out to find out what had happened. Bloiler then went to the local police headquarters or the military police headquarters to ask what was the situation and what was the reason for the arrest of the Shannons and they professed to know nothing about it which he didn't necessarily believe because the Japs were well known for adopting this we know nothing sort of situation. 
and he was unable to ascertain any further information. John's father, Oliver, was 46. His mother, Eileen, was 42. Tragic. And the great irony is they were, they were neutrals, you know, Ireland was neutral. They had no quarrel with the Japanese. We were already under intensive bombing and it must have been quite quickly that Bloiler saw the town going up in flames and the Japanese were reputed to be shooting reprisals every time there was, a, was an American raid. And he decided that it was no longer tenable to, to stay safely in Baguio and that great though the risks may, might be in leaving Baguio and setting off into the unknown jungle, that offered a better likelihood of survival than staying where we were. And I think he was probably right. Bloiler, in the absence of my parents, was kind of the senior person there. And then with my brother and myself and Maria, he and his wife and their children, and that was our little party, as it were. And so we set off um, into, the, into the jungle and the mountains. But to get to the jungle, the first hurdle was getting out of town and past a Japanese checkpoint that was blocking the road. As we approached it, we could see everyone being turned back. And when we got to it, I saw this man who I recognised, and he recognised me. The man was a Japanese school inspector who oversaw the Japanese lessons in the school. And he remembered John. And when he saw me and he saw our little group, rather than turning his back, he waved us through. And I think that if he had not done so, the likelihood of our survival would be virtually nil. We just made our way towards the Manila direction in the anticipation that that's where we would encounter the pro-American guerrillas and ultimately the Americans' lines as they were advancing up. We literally had the clothes we stood up in. Uh, we had no possessions, whatever, because we we were simply walking on foot and, then we, and we, we couldn't carry baggage or anything else like that. It's very mountainous terrain with a lot of pine trees and as you got lower, it was more jungle-based, as it were, quite rough. The problem was that it was safest to travel at night because you wouldn't find the Japanese, but it was also not very practical because you couldn't see where you were going and you didn't know exactly which direction you were going in. So what we tended to do was, in, in the heat of the day, rest up because one, it was, it was difficult to walk in the maximum heat. And then as it got, grew cool in the evening, to walk as long as one could until it grew dark. So one was, to an extent, walking into the darkness, as it were. But then when it became pitch black, you stopped because you couldn't go any further. There, there was very little food and we were very hungry. And the main challenge was to, it was to, to find water. But we, I remember, stopped for two or three days at a little village where the head man was a man called Sarate. And he allowed us to stay there. And I remember them at one point killing a caribou, which is it's like an oxen. And they did this very brutally with an axe. They literally led this beast up and tied him to a post and summoned to an axe to his neck. And that provided food for several days in terms of protein. We then moved on. But according to Maria, subsequently, the Japanese went into that little village and Serate and his people went into a cave 
and they were shouted at by the Japanese to come out and they were too fearful to do so and the Japanese set up a machine gun and simply poured machine gun bullets into the cave and killed them all. The little group pushed on through the jungle, trying to find the American lines, led by the Swiss couple and John's Filipino nursemaid, Maria. Maria carried my brother on her, on her back for most of the time we trudged through the mountains and, and, and the jungles after leaving Baguio. And she was clearly dedicated and devoted to fulfilling her responsibility to us. They were almost three weeks in the jungle. And as we progressed, there was a growing fear that the retreating, we would run into retreating Japanese and that if we did, that would be extremely dangerous for us. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Instead, we encountered the, the guerrillas who were associated with the Americans and they led us through to the American lines. Meanwhile, back in Ireland, John's relations had no idea what was going on. There was no such thing as picking up a telephone and getting in touch with people, you know. All the communications were, the war effort was put into it, so civilian things were sort of put on one side nearly, you know. I think it was quite a while before my grandmother knew that they were safe, like, you know. They hadn't heard for months from any of them, so that they were getting anxious in Dublin about what was happening. And at that point, the Americans took charge and they set up a tented refugee camp. Well, I guess they tried to ascertain what to do with these people. And I, I can remember that the Americans set up an evening cinema where they had a huge screen and they projected onto it and they'd set up chairs and you could go and, and sit and watch U.S. movies, which the first time I ever saw a movie was in the camp. And... They used to have a feature film and what they called shorts. You'd have a lot of little short films. And one of them was a sort of sing-along thing where they had the words coming up and they had the music. And one of the ones I remember was, what was it now? Um, if, you could, um, if you could wish on a star and something out you are. upon a star They were eventually put in a truck out of the camp and reunited with his father's colleagues from the bank in Manila. But I still remember my grandmother saying that hopefully they'd hear better news of Oliver and Eileen, the parents. You know, I think they were hoping against hope. They were up the mountains and hadn't been discovered nearly. I don't remember particularly asking repeatedly about them. I think that on the other side, we were being told, don't worry, you know, a lot of people have been missing. Investigations are going on. Hopefully, we will find where they are and they and they will rejoin you. So I think they created either deliberately or, or, or implicitly a belief that we shouldn't lose hope, that the likelihood was in time they would reappear. And no one at any specific time said, I'm sorry, you've now got to accept that they won't reappear. They didn't reappear, and it was decided that John and Michael would be sent to their next of kin, their elderly grandmother back in Ireland. Eventually, a boat became available for the first leg of the trip, an American troop ship, the President Jackson, which set sail from the Philippines for the west coast of the United States. That was a wonderful experience because um, the Americans 
Navy looked after us very well. We had ice cream unlimited, which we never had in the Philippines. Cheese, we, had, we fed very well. Sailors made a great deal of us. We were taken up into the gun turrets and shown all this stuff like that. So it was very exciting for us, as, as well for me certainly as a young boy. You didn't know with certainty that you were an orphan. You kind of semi-hoped that something would happen. Meanwhile, you were having a whole range of new experiences. I remember in New York seeing an escalator for the first time, which was mind-blowing, going up in a lift 40 floors and so things like that, you know. You had no experience of anything like that before. Anyway, we finally arrived in Seattle and then we embarked on a train journey across the United States. And in fact, the war had not quite ended at that point because in the middle of that train journey took three days to cross the United States. The surrendered document was finally signed in Tokyo Bay. And this news came through, and at one of the stations, the, the train was halted, and there was a huge celebration of the end of the war of Japan. And then the journey resumed, and we, we, we arrived in New York. And then there was a question, then, how you got from New York to England? And there was no immediate transport to do that. So we were sent to colleagues of my parents in Connecticut, the Mackenzies, and we stayed there for at least two or three or four months while we waited for the availability of a passage to England. John shows me black and white photos of himself and Mike, two happy-looking little boys smiling and playing in the sea at Connecticut where they were looked after by the American friends. When we embarked on the Queen Mary, my dominant impression was the huge size of it. You could walk from one end to the other and it would take you 20 minutes for a little boy. The next leg of the journey, from America to England. There was no fresh water. You had to bathe in salt water. You could only, they only had drinking water that was not, not salinated. And there were still guns on the ship. Anyway, we, on the Queen Mary, we crossed back to Southampton. And we were in London for a couple of weeks while they contacted my grandmother and aunt in in Dublin. So it was decided that they would take us to Holyhead and then give us into the keeping of the mailboat crew to take us to Dunleary. So they duly did that. We boarded the ship and we went to Dunleary and we were met there by my grandmother, my aunt, and an aunt on my mother's side. And then we went back to Frescati and uh, our new life began. They went to live with their granny and their Aunt Mary in Black Rock in Dublin. It was completely new. We, we basically didn't know each other and they were strange people and, and my grandmother was a very sort of grand lady. She was fluent in French and when she didn't want us to understand something, she'd say something in French to my aunt. My grandmother was, I can tell you. She was a very Victorian lady, but terrific actually. I was very fond of her. <laughs> My father uh, used to refer to them as the rich relations. And, uh, <laughs> well, well that's, I never heard him call anything else. And uh, as you rightly say, um, the lady they were visiting was a rather formidable old lady. And Marie tells me that we had the reputation of being the rich part of the family who lived in Frescati in Dublin. We were far from rich. <laughs> in Frescati, there were these four enormous portraits up on the wall. And she had very good silver, I can tell you. I can remember that even as a child, sort of. But, uh, so she had a lot of the trappings that went with it, but no money. You know? 
Their grandmother was in her 80s and she died less than two years after they came back. Financially, the bank looked after the boys' education and they went first to nearby Blackrock College and then to an exclusive Jesuit boarding school in England, Stonyhurst. John was a brilliant student. He was always being dangled over us as a model of, you know. <laughs> Mike was into sport and not a bit interested in studying or anything of the sort, you know. Both boys ended up in England, making their lives and getting married there. So when I left Ireland, there was really no one to go back to. They had last seen their parents sitting on a couch in Mrs Ickhart's living room in the Philippines. After that, there was no further news. There's this sense that everybody just got on with things. Even though people knew what had happened, nobody ever sat the boys down and told them the details. But in 1957, one of their father's colleagues from the bank, Ronald McIntyre, went back to the Philippines. My wife and I were having lunch in Bontoc, northern Luzon, one day in 1957, en route to the rice terraces. There were three Filipino lawyers at the next table with whom we conversed. One turned out to be the Baguio City Fiscal, who had heard about the Shannons. He said he had always known that the Japanese shot the Shannons in the street near the house in which they had arrested them. It is a sad and gruesome story about a wonderful family who did so much for the rest of us and who must have suffered a great deal themselves before they were murdered. John himself didn't hear about this until he visited Nora McIntyre in San Francisco just ten years ago. By that time I'd assume, I'd obviously assumed that they had, something had happened and they'd been executed. But it was she who for the first time said, oh no, no, we know what happened. They were shot. This Manila, Manila lawyer we talked to said yes, he knew for certain that the Shannons and Mrs. Eckhart had been shot very soon after they'd been taken from the, the, the show. And then subsequently, when I was going through all these letters to and fro from the bank and other people, I stumbled across this thing where that had been reported in one of these letters. And obviously my, my aunt must have come across it and she chose not to, not to tell us. I don't blame her for that. In one sense, although I won't say I was relieved to hear it, at least it definitively brought the thing to an end. You knew what had happened. Rather than wondering, did this happen? Were they killed in an air raid? Did they die malnutrition? Were they thrown into prison? You know what I mean? At least you knew definitively that that had happened. I think the worst thing in their minds... I think, once they were taken and led away, what was what, what were going to happen to their sons? If something happened to them, who was going to look after their sons? That must have been one of the biggest births that, that they had. I think it's certainly made me feel more pressure and responsibility to knit the family together and to keep them in contact, and to, particularly with the, my son and daughter, to have their children relate to each other and be, be friendly cousins and so forth. Yes, yes, I think that's very important. 